Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Welcome all of you. It's actually fitting that we conclude our current series, Finding Faith in Rock and Roll, with a love song. Uh, The classic power ballad, I want to know what love is. Uh, That was phenomenal. Farner is one of those, you know, vintage big hair bands from the 80s. And it's fitting that we close the series with that anthem, because did you know this? Almost 95% of all contemporary rock songs are about love. Did you know that? Think about it. Think about what's on your iPod, okay? If we were to go into your car, you take out your iPod, what are you listening to? Think about the titles of the songs, their themes. Rock is actually about relationships. I mean, yeah, it's about rebellion and rage and revolution, but at the heart of rock and roll is relationships, romance, love relationships. Now, we started this series with the uh, Stones' romantic lament, you know, I can't get no satisfaction. And your iPod may contain some classic and contemporary riffs on love. Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors, asked, Hello, I love you. Won't you tell me your name? Just a hopeless romantic, right? Doesn't even know you, but I love you. Uh, The rock group Boston insisted that love was more than a feeling. And then Peter Cetera, the supergroup Chicago, whined, I don't want to live without your love. You remember that one? And Grace Slick of Jefferson Airplane, I think it was, before they were Starship. She echoed that sentiment by asking, Don't you go. On somebody to love. Don't you need somebody to love? And then you have psychedelic backgrounds going on. The Beatles insisted actually all you need is love. It's an innate human desire and longing. After all, the band Three Dog Night reminded us in the 60s, one is the loneliest number. Now, I realize this is going to receive a mixed reaction in a crowd with both, you know, singles, marrieds, and folks who are single again in it. And perhaps when it comes to the topic of romantic relationships, you prefer to hum along to the Jay Giles band classic, Love Stinks, right? <laughs> Love is, uh, some of you knew it, it's on your iPod. Love is a tricky subject. I mean, what makes for a relationship that goes the distance? Is there really such a thing as true love? Or should we settle for something less? As Meatloaf put it in his own power ballad, you know, I want you, I need you, but there ain't no way I'm ever gonna love you. So baby, don't be sad because two out of three ain't bad, right? I cannot believe I'm quoting Meatloaf in a church. This is amazing. (laughs) You you get the point. Relational romance has been a recurring theme of rock and roll since the invention of R&B. Now, most of us know what R&B stands for. What's it stand for? Rhythm and blues. But today, I want to actually add to this definition. Tonight, as we consider the rhythm and blues of love, I want R&B to stand for a woman and a man named Ruth and Boaz. Ruth and Boaz's love story actually plays out like the best of R&B. And it helped us answer Farner's question, I want to know what love is. As I said, 95% of popular music is about that four-letter word, L-O-V-E. And so you'd think that there'd be more clarity on the issue, but there's actually not. Single people ask the question, well, what should I be looking for in, in a spouse? 
Is love worth waiting for? And if you're married, many, a lot of married folks wonder, like, well, what is it that actually keeps love alive in a long-term relationship? And some of us have been, you know, looking for love in all the wrong places, and we're wondering if actually there's any hope at all in finding a relationship that could go the distance. Well, the neat thing is that the Bible provides us some very practical guidelines on the subject. And tonight, I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Ruth. This is not one we often reference, and it's in the Old Testament. Nikki's going to turn the lights on. Would you pass down the blue Bibles that you'll find in the pews so that everybody has a copy you can look on there? This, we're going to take a look at God's design for relational harmony. This is the R&B of love, the rhythm and blues required for a lasting relationship. And it's really vividly illustrated in the story of Ruth and Boaz. Now, here's the deal. Ruth is nestled in the Old Testament, and it's a short book. There are only four chapters. But it's a powerful love story like few other biblical accounts. It's got both rhythm and the blues. Now, as you find that, it's on page 422. It's, like I said, only four chapters long. I'd like to see how in tune this crowd is. Do a little rhythm test, okay? Now, rhythm, for those of you who are musically challenged, is the thing that actually drives the song, right? It's the pattern of actually the beats or the melodic accents that give a song its power. Let's see how good your rhythm is, okay? Put your Bible on your lap for a minute. Put your hands in the air. Ready? I'm going to count. As I do that, you put your hands together. I'm going to go one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. You, you should be in the choir. Excellent. Excellent. Good job. Give yourselves a hand. Excellent. You've got excellent rhythm. Now, here's the deal. When we meet Ruth, she is not into the rhythm thing. Her life is actually offbeat relationally. She's actually singing the blues. She was in a marriage relationship. But her husband of 10 years actually has just died as this story opens. But she had met him when he and his family have moved from Israel to the land of Moab in order to escape a famine. So life was hard for Ruth. And they got married. They actually led a storybook life until suddenly her husband died. So Ruth knew something about love and about loss as well. So when this story opens, she was single She was married, and now she found herself single again. And likely wrestling with many of the issues we all struggle with. Loneliness, right? She knew heartache. She wondered if God had actually anyone out there for her. And she likely wondered if marriage was worth it. I mean, would it be a good chance to actually risk opening her heart again and loving someone again? But right at the beginning of this story, right after her husband dies, Ruth does something amazing, a little bit different. She finds a friend, actually a close confidant in one of the unlikeliest places, her mother-in-law. Now, most of us think, actually, that's a great way to ruin a marriage. Let the mother-in-law into the relationship, right? But there's something that bonded Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, from the start. That is, Naomi had just lost her husband as well. So both of these women in this story are widows. And this was very difficult back in the ancient Middle Eastern culture. Because back then, money and property did not pass from the husband to the wife. It passed from man to man to man. So if you were female, and without a husband, you were penniless, you were homeless, and you were downtrodden. Very vulnerable open to being taken advantage of, and often poverty-stricken. So these two women, Ruth and Naomi, can take a look. You're going to read through. I'm going to cover all four chapters, so you can kind of glance down here. They're newly single, and they're facing a famine. And in that context, Naomi, the mother-in-law, she says, let's make the trek from Moab back to her home in Bethlehem in the nation of Israel. And Ruth, her daughter-in-law, accompanies her on the journey. So while we open up here in chapter 1 of the book of Ruth, Naomi and Ruth are traveling to Israel probably on donkeys. And the Bible says here in chapter 1, about halfway through the journey, they stopped off to get something to eat. They're talking over some, you know, camel burgers at Wendy's or whatever it is. And Naomi says in verse 11, it says, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me to Bethlehem? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. 
Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, why would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? Now, the reason she says plural there, there's actually another daughter traveling along with Ruth on the journey. And she took the invite right here at the beginning to return home. But in essence, Naomi is saying, Ruth, what are you doing with me? I'm the mother-in-law, and here you are, young, beautiful, at the zenith of your life. Go back to Moab. You were Mrs. Moab in high school, Ms. Moab, you know. You got the sash. You can meet a guy there. You can get married there. You can start life afresh there. I'm old. I'm three times your age. I have nothing to offer, no money, no future relationally. Now, I want you to look in verse 16 at one of the greatest expressions of friendship in the Bible of all time. Look at Ruth's reply to Naomi in the Wendy's parking lot. She says, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. When Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. It's an amazing verse. I give you full permission to actually circle it in your pew Bible. I actually performed a wedding ceremony a few months ago this past summer, and that was the main verse that they actually had in their vows to one another. It's it's an incredibly romantic verse. It's not romantic in this context, but where you go, I will go. Your God is my God. I will die where you die. Well, what was Ruth saying here? She was actually saying at this moment that she was willing to leave her past, her customs, and the God, little g, that she knew in Moab, because Moab was actually a very ungodly place. And she was willing to go Naomi's way and do life God's way with God's people. She was willing to give her life to the God of Israel and be under Naomi's authorities. That's essentially what she's saying here. And it really brings up the first beat of God's relational rhythm for spousal selection. Remember I told you to clap your hands one, two, three, four, five. There are five basic beats to God's relational rhythm of relationships that actually can go the distance. And if you miss any of them, it just throws the whole song off. So the first beat... If you want to have a relationship as God intended it to be, is to make the move from Moab and decide to go God's way. Single, single people here, raise your hand, okay? Oh, okay, about half the crowd. When you are dating someone, you've got to ask yourself two questions. First, you have got to ask yourself if you actually have made the move from Moab. Have you left your past, your customs, your, your little G God, and begun doing life actually God's way? And the second question you have to ask is whether the person you are dating has made the move from Moab. Have they left their past, their customs, their little G-God, and are they doing life God's ways? Because if you haven't made the move, you'll never get into God's groove. You just never will. A lot of us here in this room are kind of mesmerized by Moab. Now, here's the deal. If you know anything about biblical geography, Moab was near a significant body of water. It was a sea in which nothing could grow. Hence, it was called the Dead Sea. Yeah, stagnant body of water in which nothing can actually grow. So if you want to have a dead life, relationally speaking, you make your bed in Moab. Moab was one of the nations that actually oppressed Israel during the period of the judges. In other words, Moab was hostile towards God's people. In fact, to show you how hard-hearted the Moabites were towards the things of God, they actually were forbidden from worshiping in the Jewish tabernacle because they didn't let the Israelites pass through their land during their exodus from Egypt. Imagine that. They were in slavery. They finally were out. God delivered a mighty hand through the Red Sea, and the Moabites said, Not in our country. You got to go around, take the long way, sorry. So these are some hardcore anti-God people in Moab who did whatever they pleased and they didn't have time to make room for spiritual things or God in their lives. 
And so Ruth, when she takes this courageous step in actually moving to Bethlehem, she's going back to Israel, back to the promised land where God's people dwell, she's making an incredible decision. She's deciding to leave her home, her customs, the people who knew her, who she was most comfortable with, and actually set out to invest her life in a new community, along with the people who followed God. And from a biblical and practical perspective, really, that choice made no sense. It meant that actually she was likely ruling out a whole swath of potential suitors in Moab who knew her and who actually might have been very interested in marrying her. Instead, she sets out with Naomi and she makes this declaration. No, no, from now on, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. You see, to make the move from Moab, you have to do something that's actually very tough. Something that takes everything that you've got. You actually have to have the strength, character, integrity. And when you make the move from Moab and go God's way into his relational rhythm of spousal selection, you are automatically wiping out 70% of all the possible contenders that you could hook up with. You are saying that you're willing to actually wipe out over two-thirds of the people who could possibly be your mate. And you know what? A lot of people don't want to do that. (laughs) Wipe out 70%? It's a small fishbowl as is. No way. But the Bible says that we are to be joined together, that we are to date and actually marry only those who are believers so that the Lord himself can be the common denominator in that relationship. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? In other words, Paul conjures the image of a a yoke. You know, those shoulder braces. They were used to harness a pair of oxen, a team of oxen, and he uses it to describe the marriage relationship. And he says, don't be teamed together with a man or a woman who doesn't share your commitment to God. Why? Because what happens when a team of oxen pull in opposite directions? One pulls one way, the other pulls the other way. Both go nowhere. (laughs) Worse yet, the more powerful of the two will actually end up overpowering the other. and It'll be a compromised partnership marked by conflict and domination. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? This is why God actually forbid his people to intermarry among the Moabites. Because he knew those people didn't fear or respect anything he had to say. Same thing. As people who follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, that's why we call ourselves Christians, not because we were born into a family, but we said, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ with my life. We are called out to be in committed relationships with other Christ followers. Men and women who share our faith and follow commitment to follow God with our lives, who also want to cultivate a relationship based on the thread of spiritual faith. We have to make the move from Moab and determine to go God's way, and it requires sacrifice just like it did for Ruth. And for you, singles, practically speaking, honestly, it may mean you have to cut your list of potential spouses in half or into a quarter if you decide only to date other followers of Christ. But this initial act of sacrifice is the one that God's word tells us provides the foundational building block for any love relationship that has a chance of going the distance. Now, understand what I mean when I say to be equally yoked spiritually because some of us, you know, erroneously think that you're kind of like, Well, that's good. I'm in church tonight. (laughs) I'm going to meet her at Liquid. If I meet her at church, I know that she has made the move from Moab. (laughs) Well, I hate to rain on your party, but that is not necessarily true. A lot of people here have made the move from Moab, but a lot of people here are still kind of mesmerized by Moab. Still kind of, you know, dropping the flirt, chasing the skirt. (laughs) Once in a while, very once in a while, when I get on a health kick, 
I will start paying attention to labels on the stuff I buy at the supermarket. And I'll start looking for things that say, you know, low fat or nutritionally balanced. And I take the product off the shelf, but it seems like everything nowadays is trumpeting, you know, it's healthy content. Check this out. I actually saw in Wegmans a jar, it was gourmet, of marshmallow fluff with, <laughs> with a big red label that said, a fat-free food, exclamation point. An excellent source of calcium. Now, I'm smart enough to know that what I see and what I hear is not always the real deal. <laughs> So you turn it around and you actually read the contents. And more often than not, this nutritionally balanced, low-fat stuff is kind of just, you know, laden with sugar and additives. It's just going to mess up your system and actually wreak havoc with your health. The stuff is trash, but from an advertising and a marketing perspective, it looks great. Same with church people. A lot of people here say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. I'm doing relationships God's way. We'll do this. You turn them around and you read the contents of their lives. And a lot of times, if you look close enough, it's like, whoa, a little bit of false advertising going on here. The Bible says, by their fruit, you shall know them. Not what they look like, but what they actually do. Do their actions actually give demonstrations of the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Is he or she actually marked by increasing amounts of love, of patience, of kindness, goodness, self-control? Because that's the mark of Christ followers. And it's the foundation for any relationship that hopes to be more than just an uneven hookup. So singles, let me ask you. Have you made the move from Moab? (laughs) Has the person actually that you're dating made the move? Have they left their past, their customs, their gods gods to do it God's way, capital G? Parents, now I'm talking to married people here. You have got to monitor your children's relationships at a very early age. You have to see if the people they are dating have made the move from Moab. Don't tune out if you're, by the way, tonight, if you're, like, sitting here married, like, oh, I didn't realize this is a message for singles. I know you don't want to believe this, parents, but there will be a moment where your little children are going to grow up one day to be big kids and teenagers, and they're going to become interested in the opposite sex, and you're going to need to actually guide them in the finer art of spouse selection and how to find the ultimate, okay? So take note of monitoring the Moab quotient in the lives of their friends, That's the first beat in God's relational rhythm. Make the move from Moab and decide to go God's way as Ruth did. It's going to save a lot of time and heartache in the wrong run. Singles, when you um, avoid unequal yoking, it's going to help you avoid compromising your faith. You're not going to experience the intense pressure to do many of the things that you know are simply not part of God's programs. It's actually not what most non-believers do. Most non-believers don't factor God into their decisions. They're hence non-believers. And so there's no pressure, there's no conflict. Or there is, and there's compromise. Marrieds, avoiding unequal yoking is going to help you avoid conflicts in your marriage later on. I have close friends who are married even though they don't share the same faith. She was actually raised uh, Christian and he is agnostic. Grew up Catholic but kind of dropped out after, you know, had a chance to like, you know, in college just kind of never went back. And they're married. It's never been a problem. And now guess what? Kids. And it came to me because they're like, I don't know how we raise them. Yeah. (laughs) A source of tension and conflict. Why? Unequal yoking. So from the start, you make the hard choice that Ruth did. Make the move from Moab, and you go God's way, and you begin laying the foundation for relational harmony. Now, the second relational beat is that after we make the move, we've got to observe the ethic. Now, here's what happened, okay? This is just if you're taking notes. But we left Ruth and Naomi here in Chapter 1 in the Wendy's parking lot. They're eating camel burgers. Uh, They jump back on their donkeys. They start making their way towards Bethlehem. And as they do, they see these beautiful fields containing wheat and barley. Take a look. You can just kind of skim over with your eyes. Um, You may not know this, maybe you've been there. Israel's climate is very moderate. And there are two harvests every year. One in the spring, one in the fall. 
And it was during this springtime harvest that Ruth and Naomi returned to God's land here. They knew it was harvest time because the, the fields were filled with workers. So it's a it's kind of a season of hope and plenty, which was fortunate because, remember, Naomi, she was ancient. She was old, unable to do much work. Ruth was her only means of support. Well, you know what Ruth does? Soon as they hit town, Ruth says, I'm going to work. And she ran out to a field and began working to support herself and her widowed mother-in-law. It says in verse 2 of chapter 2, And Ruth, though the, um, how do you even say this? The Moabitess, the lady from Moab. She said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And the Bible actually says that she began to glean. Anyone know what gleaning is? It's kind of picking up the excess wheat that the harvesters had dropped. That's what gleaning is. When the, when the wheat and barley were ready to be harvested, basically reapers were hired to kind of cut down the stalks and tie them up into bundles. But God's law demanded that the corners of every Israelite field were to be left untouched, not harvested. In addition, any grain that was dropped was to be left for poor people to pick it up and use it for food. So the purpose of the law, actually, of God's law, was to feed the poor and to prevent the owners from hoarding. Basically, it was a type of welfare program for Israel. So because Ruth was a widow, with no means of providing for herself, she went into the field to glean this grain, and this is significant, because it tells us something about Ruth's character. Instead of depending on Naomi, or waiting for good fortune to happen, she takes the initiative. She actually goes to work. She was not afraid of admitting, actually, her need or working hard to supply it. And though the task of gleaning is actually pretty menial... (laughs) and exhausting, and perhaps degrading. Ruth didn't think herself above humble work and serving her mother-in-law in this critical way. So Ruth tackles this menial task for peasants and servants, and guess what's happened? Now talk about love is in the air, okay? Look at this in chapter 2. The owner of the field shows up, and he's a big, bold, godly, and wealthy man named Boaz, or just Bo for short. He owns all of these fields, and he's going to check out his property. In chapter 2 here, he's kind of sitting back. He's like looking, talking to some of his lieutenants, and he sees this babe out there among the workers following the harvesters, and he's like, who is that? Look at what the foreman replies in Ruth 2, verse 6. She is the lady from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz noticed her. He was attracted to her. And then he observes her ethic, which is really about looking at what what makes a person tick. At their character. Not just their looks. Not just their personality. But what's on the inside of their heart. Now listen. I would be lying to you if I told you that the first thing that attracted me to Colleen was her work ethic. I lie. I'm not going to lie to you. I don't want to get struck down by lightning here. Back in our Song of Solomon series, I told you that when the first time I saw her at college, you know, it was like, you know, it was really her, her you know, big hair that got my heart racing, you know? Got a glimpse of those legs out of Unbro shorts there. We were in the first class together. We were out in Chicago in the Midwest, and I was homesick. You know, and in my freshman writing class, I saw this girl with this big blonde bouffant all kind of like aquanetted up here. And I was like home, you know, this kind of New Jersey, yeah, physical attraction is important, definitely, I saw Colleen's beauty, okay, her her hair, her legs, all the rest, but that's the truth, 
But you have, got, you have got to be attracted to the person you are dating and who you are considering marrying. Don't even think that you shouldn't. You don't have to make an excuse here and be all like super spiritual and fake. No, you got to be attracted. But it was Colleen's humility and her work ethic, which reflected her inner character, that was the thing that moved me from mere attraction to actually pursuing a relationship with her. I've told you before how I actually began kind of following her around campus, not like stalking. <laughs> you know, kind of afar, just kind of taking notice of like who her friends were, you know, where she ate, kind of what she did in her spare time. And it was a few weeks into our spring semester when I noticed that she drove a blue van, which I thought was, you know, kind of a weird thing. Like how many freshman girls in college drive a 15-passenger van, you know? <laughs> Had this bumper sticker on it. It was like, if the van is rocking, don't come knocking. No, just kidding. That's not true. <laughs> Totally not true. I, I quickly learned, I was like, blue van, and then I saw them all over. I was like, how could she be in all these places at once? I learned that these were ministry vans. The vans our college used to transport volunteers to and from the Joliet prison for youth, where young leaders from campus actually would go and spend their time tutoring the teenage inmates in basic skills like math and reading. And as I watched, I noticed that every Friday, Colleen would drive one of these blue vans to that prison where she would tutor three young girls every week on Friday nights. I learned it was Friday nights because the first time I asked her out, she's like, oh, I would love to, you know, but I'm sorry, no, I'm, I'm going to prison this Friday, you know. I... <laughs> Which kind of actually intrigued me even more. I was like, really? <laughs> Naughty girl, all right. <laughs> but as I got to know her, that was the thing that convinced me to actually move from attraction to pursuing her. Not only was she beautiful to me on the outside, but her inner spirit, the one that actually loved to serve, that was humble enough to invest her time and energies serving people who were less fortunate, people who would never even pay her back, made me think, okay, possible wife material. Big hair, check. Bigger heart, bingo. And the first thing Ruth does after making the move from Moab is to humbly tackle a task that served those in need. Have you ever felt too good to actually do certain tasks? Ever felt that like your skills level was kind of above this? I don't know. Oftentimes, it can be a test from God. God was giving Ruth a test, and Ruth responded tenaciously. It gave evidence of her inner character, that she was a woman of responsibility, of servanthood, and compassion. And Boaz saw this, and it just kind of rocked his world. Now, he had seen a lot of beautiful women. Remember, he was a young, rich landowner. Women probably threw themselves at him. But Ruth had something else that set her apart, and it's called character. He observed her ethic, and that's what told him this woman was special and worth pursuing. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the author is writing to wives, to women, and he instructs this. He says, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. In other words, loose translation, don't believe the bling. We all know women and men who put a primary emphasis on physical appearance, on what potential mates wear, on what they drive, on how good they look when they pick them up. But Peter says, no, don't believe the bling-bling. Your beauty shouldn't come from outward adornment, <laughs> like jewelry and fine clothes. That's often a smokescreen. You can't see what's underneath it all. Instead, true beauty should flow from your inner self, the heart. This is about character. This is about a gentle and quiet spirit, which is what counts, actually, in God's eyes. 
Our world has never been more appearance-obsessed. Hence the rise of celebrities and models who are only famous for, like, just being famous or beautiful. Most of you are familiar with Paris Hilton. To me, this is the antithesis of what God is counseling us here. This is a girl who is admittedly beautiful in some twisted American, you know, steroids kind of way. And much of it comes from artificial means, you know, her bleached hair, designer makeup, Gucci bag, little dog, you know, Jimmy Choo heels. That's why she's on the cover of so many magazines. But have you ever heard her interviewed in person? She is one of the, not just vacuous, she's actually a nastiest, cynical, and most self-absorbed human beings I've ever heard speak. I actually like felt bad for her. I was like, oh, no, don't say any more. Don't talk. <laughs> You're ruining it. Just, just, just to strut, just strut, you know. If you've ever watched her show The Simple Life, the main hook is how she treats normal people with cruelty and cynicism and just obnoxiousness. Folks, if you find someone who needs to live a certain lifestyle, to live in a certain zip code, drive a certain car, you head for the hills. You turn away from him or her. You don't want to mess with them because they're going to mess you up. You have got to see the inner character in the person that you may be considering yoking yourself to. You've got to observe their ethic. Are you doing that? Have you got to marry somebody who's going to be happy whether they're in the fields picking up XX grain or they're in the mansion with diamonds galore? Can the person go with you no matter actually where you go? I know that if I walked home and told Colleen, I felt by God, God's telling me, Colleen, we've got to move to Zimbabwe, she would do it. She would do it. She'd make a final trip to the Short Hills Mall, but then we would do it. We would go. (laughs) And ladies, check this out. Boaz saw Ruth on a bad hair day, okay, to put this in modern terminology. She had the ball cap on, you could turn backwards, grain all over her face. This is not the greatest appearance moment. She's in the fields for hours in the hot noonday sun, but she was humble. She was willing to serve, she was willing to work hard, and she had incredible interior character. An outward attraction, I'm sure, but it was girded by this inner beauty of a gentle, faithful spirit that's of great worth in God's sight. So are you looking for the things that God actually looks for in a spouse? If we're honest, most of us have unrealistic expectations. (laughs) The problem is that most guys are looking now for a girl with the curves of, you know, Tira Banks and the morals of Mother Teresa. Women are kind of looking for, you know, a guy who looks like George Clooney with the morals like Billy Graham. Yes, there must be chemistry going on, but observe their ethic. Are they willing to humbly serve? Are they actually moved by compassion and care for others? If I was new to a church and wanted to find a flower worth picking, I would go straight to the volunteer teams, to the people actually you don't see here all the times up on the stage. If I, I would actually go to the women who are here early each Sunday, writing name tags, running the hospitality team, setting up the stage, using their gifts in worship ministry or teaching our little ones at Liquid Kids. The work matters because marriage is not really lived at some fever pitch level. (laughs) And when the outside attraction attraction just kind of waxes and wanes, and it will, (laughs) all you'll have to rely on is what's inside. What you valued up front will determine the strength of your relationship during times of testing. Character counts. It's foremost in God's eyes and the second beat in the relational rhythm that he presents here in Ruth. Now, I want to go to the third beat, and it's very easy to remember. It's simply look for loyalty, because Boaz actually then runs up to Ruth, and he begins to talk to her. He actually initiates contact here. He reverenced her. He respected her. He looked at her loyalty, and Ruth 2.11, he says to her, I've been told, uh, by the way, Ruth is um, all about (laughs) what you have done for your (laughs) mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you actually left your father and mother in your homeland, and came to live with people who you did not know before. In other words, word had gotten around. Her reputation had preceded her. 
Now, maybe Boaz was thinking to himself, you know, you are my baby, Ruth. You know, this is corny. But Boaz, sorry, sorry. Let's cross that out. Boaz valued her loyalty. Naomi had nothing to offer to Ruth. Yet Ruth was absolutely loyal to her, committed to her, under her authority. (laughs) Naomi was her mentor as well as her mother-in-law. When you are dating somebody, you look at their loyalty both in and out of their family. In other words, do they have a consistent track record of relationships? Do they have friends who actually have been friends for a long time? Or is it kind of one of those persons who, like, you know, plays relational hopscotch? You know, jumping from one relationship to another. If you pursue someone like that, you are going to have nagging concerns about long-term commitment. They're going to dog you. You have to look for loyalty. It is big. It is important. Loyalty, long-term commitment to family, to friends, to those we love, oftentimes is not even a thought. Because most of us are so smitten that we forget about the things that truly matter. Remember, this is about character. And Ruth's life gives observable evidence of Christian character. That's what Boaz is saying here. He's like, you're hardworking, you're loving, you're faithful, you're brave, you're willing to make sacrifices. Those qualities gain for her a good reputation. Not only because she showed them there, but consistently in all areas of her life. Whenever, wherever Ruth went, her character remained the same. And Boaz notes that here. He, he says, I value that. And something more, he responded to that. See, Boaz had godly character of his own. Although he was wealthy, although he was independent, he didn't believe the bling and derive his worth from his net worth. Rather, like Ruth, he was a man of compassion and kindness who actually looked for excuses to show the goodness of God to people who were in need. And he actively responds here to God's prompting when he felt like he he should. If you skip a few verses down, you'll notice that Boaz invites Ruth to his table and he shows incredible hospitality to this woman who is a foreigner. She's a widow, she's poor, she's penniless. But check this out. He says this, verses 14 through 20 tell the story. It says, at mealtime, Boaz said to Ruth, come over here, have, have some bread, dip it in the wine vinegar. And when she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And do not rebuke her. In other words, Boaz goes the extra mile in showing compassion and generosity to Ruth in her moment of need. As I said, the Israelite law required that landowners allow the poor to gather from the edges of their fields. But Boaz, he's like, I want to go beyond what God requires. And he says to his men, intentionally leave some of the best behind for this lady and her mother-in-law. Out of his abundance, out of what God had blessed him with, he provides for the needy. Which tells us something about Boaz's heart and his character. He was a man among men, at least in God's eyes. And that's another great indicator to take note of when considering a potential spouse. Do they actually show kindness and generosity to those beneath them? Do they actually look for ways to go beyond the accepted, you know, accepted, you know, social patterns of providing for those less fortunate? You know, share a few dollars in church, whatever, and, you know, if we see somebody, we'll say a prayer. But when you see a person whose heart is capable of opening up with kindness towards someone they don't even know, you can rest assured it is a good indicator of how they will care for someone who they actually make a marriage commitment to. Kindness, goodness, sacrifice, generosity to those in need. Fruits of God's spirit. 
And Boaz had them in abundance. Verse 17 says, So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. That's probably about three-fifths of a bushel, something like 22 liters. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. And her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. Verse 20. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen Redeemers. And now this is important, folks. It's the key to this entire passage, and it captures the essence of what it means to truly love somebody from God's perspective. This term here, kinsman redeemer, is huge. In fact, let's say it together. Repeat it with me. Ready? Kinsman redeemer. As widows, Ruth and Naomi could only look forward to difficult times. As I told you, widows in ancient culture, poverty-stricken, forgotten. And that may be how some of you actually feel relationally. (laughs) You know, you're single and you feel relationally bankrupt, like all alone or forgotten. Or perhaps you're married, but you and your spouse are miles apart. And you feel like actually a work, practically speaking, a widow, relationally. Sometimes, you know, being in a loveless marriage can actually be more painful than having no relationship at all. Well, Naomi, the widow, says to Ruth, take hope. Boaz is one of our kinsmen redeemers. In ancient times, a kinsman redeemer was a relative who volunteered to take responsibility for the extended family. And in the case of a widow, when a woman's husband died, the law said that she could marry a brother of her dead husband. Now imagine if that were true today. Imagine if that were true today. We would really think carefully about who our brothers were dating, wouldn't we? <laughs> You'd be like, oh, dude, don't date her. No way. You get hit by a train. I don't want that. I don't want <laughs> The stakes would go up, wouldn't they? But see, Naomi had no more sons for Ruth to marry. So in that case, the nearest relative to the deceased husband could become a kinsman redeemer and marry the widow. That's where the term comes from, right? If the husband died, the next of kin had the option to marry the widow to further the family name and also to redeem or buy back all of the dead husband's holdings. She would get a second chance to be redeemed by her kin. So Naomi told Ruth that in an amazing coincidence... It looked like Boaz was the next of kin, and that he therefore could be the one to redeem her. But the onus was on Ruth. She needed to communicate to Boaz that she was actually available to be redeemed and give him the option to marry her. So here's what happened in chapter 3. Chapter 3. Now, this is going to seem kind of strange. This is is going to weird you out. But it wasn't back in the day. Look at verses 3 through 4 in chapter 3. Naomi tells Ruth to dress up in her best attire, put her, you know, Tommy girl cologne on, And find Boaz while he's sleeping on the threshing floor. That's where the harvesters, you know, brought in the harvest for sorting. You see, when the men slept on this threshing floor during harvest so they could take turns threshing the wheat. So she told her that when she found him, she's to lie at his feet, which would symbolize that she wanted him to redeem her or marry her and buy all of her deceased husband's estate. Now, Naomi's advice here seems strange, but this, she was not suggesting a seductive act. Don't go there. This, is like not, this isn't like where Ruth goes sex in the city here, okay? In reality, 
Naomi was telling Ruth to act in accordance with Israelite custom and law. See, it was common for a servant to lie at the feet of his master and even share part of his covering. So when Naomi says, wash and perfume yourself, put on your best clothes, go down to the threshing floor, and when he lies down, go and uncover his feet and lie down, she's in essence telling Ruth Ruth, to observe traditional custom as a way of informing Boaz that he can be her kinsman redeemer, that she was available and interested in being married to him. So now I want you to imagine this scene. Now we go to the episode. Ruth, she's dressed in her best. She's creeping around a bunch of sleeping men in this huge grain warehouse. The scent of, you know, Elizabeth Arden sunflowers wafts over the whole scene. And when Ruth finally finds Boaz, she lays down at his feet. Perhaps the perfume awoke him. Whatever it was, Boaz knew that his prayers were answered and that he wa- she wanted him to redeem her, to marry her. Read with me at verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached, approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered this woman lying on his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant Ruth, verse 9. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. I want to stop right here because what's most significant is what Boaz didn't do. When Ruth approached him in the middle of the night, all dolled up in perfume in her best dress, Boaz protected the purity of their relationship. I mean, think about this, guys. Women, turn off for a minute. (laughs) Guys, you're asleep. Pretty lady comes creeping into the room. You're already attracted to her. She has incredible character, loves God, cares about others. Middle of the night, and your girlfriend shows up wearing her best outfit, Aquanet hair up, wearing perfume. What are you thinking? Kinsman redeemer. I am her redeemer. That's what it is. I want, I want to protect this lady. No. Boaz could actually very easily, yes, had to have sex with her. The conditions couldn't have been more conducive. He was a wealthy man. She was willing. No problem. No big deal. But he doesn't. He loved her enough to actually protect her sexual purity. He waited until marriage to have sexual intercourse with the woman who would be his bride. And the reality is, folks, if you are involved in sexual intercourse outside of marriage, you are going to experience problems. Let me tell you why. I call this kind of the car approach. If you have relations outside the marriage bed, it is like taking a high-speed sports car off-road, somewhere that it was never designed to travel. You will be confused in your judgment. And the reason so many people are hooking up with all the wrong persons in record numbers is because of the power of sex. Sex confuses our power to reason. We can't even get a good read if the person is right or wrong for us. First, it kind of abuses a gift that's bestowed on us by God himself. Sex is a... First, I need to say that. Sex is an incredible gift. An amazing gift. An exhilarating gift that words truly can't describe. It is designed, it was thought up by God himself. And we are to practice it in the context of one man, one woman committed before God in the gift of marriage. So if you want to be abused, confused, and refused, you go ahead and you get busy on the threshing floor. It's kind of like this. What's your name? Hi, Bob. Welcome to Liquid. 
Did you drive here? Yeah. What kind of car did you drive? Honda Civic. Can I have the keys? Do you have them on you? Yeah. Pass them over here. <laughs> I got Bob's keys. Here we go. I got Bob's keys to his Honda Civic and his Blockbuster Rewards Gold card. <laughs> so if any women are looking for a kinsman redeemer, Bob's it tonight. You, you're, the, you're the man. Now, here's the deal here. This is great. You, he's a Honda man, Honda, reliable car. That's actually a very, that's a very good car. It's actually one of the, I think it's one of the most stolen cars. Isn't that right? <laughs> I think so. I think it is. Um, now, let me say, let's say, pretend tonight, Bob, that I could change these car keys into a set of keys for a Lamborghini Diablo. Let's just say. Do you know what a Lamborghini Diablo costs, Bob? Yeah, it's actually about $495,000. Can you imagine a car that's about half a million dollars? Incredible car, powerful car, pricey car. I have never driven one, but I hear they are. Now, what if I said, Bob, we are feeling generous today at church. It's been a great month giving-wise, the offering, you know, just... <laughs> and, uh, and actually, I want to give you the keys to the Lamborghini Diablo. You probably, what would happen? Oh, you're ruthless. <laughs> and you'd give it to the poor, right? Oh, amazing man. There he is, Kinsman Redeemer. You'd probably give me a hug and tell me this is the best church I have ever been to, right? Now, now Bob would actually, you'd take care of that car. You probably would take care of the car. You'd, you'd, you'd wash the car. You'd put the proper fuel in the car. You probably would not think about taking this car off-road, would you? You wouldn't do that. We're talking about a Lamborghini, not a Ford F-150. This is not made for that. It will mess it up. Bob, in fact, this is what a Lamborghini looks like that has been off-roading. Take a look at this. Go ahead, Carol. In the same way, folks, we take the gift of sex, which makes the Lamborghini Diablo seem quite pathetic, <laughs> and we say, we're not going to use it God's way because I want to drive it my way. And we take it off-road, and ultimately it causes frustration, destruction, and wreckage. God is saying to take one of his most powerful and precious gifts and drive it within the confines of the racetrack he's designed, and it's called marriage. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, honor marriage and guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between wife and husband. God draws a fine line against casual and illicit sex. In other words, both in and out of marriage, protect the purity of your relationship. Now, the reality is that I know that in a crowd this size, many of you here are involved in sex outside of marriage. But here's hope. If you make the decision today to tell God that you actually want to do a U-turn and go his way, he actually has promised to provide the strength and the endurance to abstain until marriage. It is not easy. I'm not going to lie to you. Colleen and I remained pure until we got married. I had to fight her off of me for eight years. It was not easy. Obviously joking. It was not easy. We stumbled in many places. But I can tell you, if we can make it, you can too. The great news is that we serve a God of second and third chances. That's what a redeemer does. That's what it means to redeem something. To buy it back, give the original value, the value of a second chance. And I don't care what you have done in this area, but if you tell God you want to go his way, he will do wonderful things in your life. I have counseled couples where the, you know, one guy was involved with a lot of different ladies sexually before he got married. He met a girl after he became a Christian. But together, when they got serious about their relationship, thought it was you know, moving towards marriage and we want to do right by God, they both decided together to make the move from Moab and go God's way instead. 
And they actually dated for a year and remained pure. And on the wedding night, they gave each other one of the greatest gifts you can give. Sexual purity. When you can hand the keys to your bride or your new husband and say, she's all yours. Take it for a spin. She's not ruined or wrecked from being misused off-road. It's one of the most powerful and exhilarating gifts you can give your spouse. So if you're dating or engaged, you take Boaz's cue and you protect the purity. And men, here's the deal. This is your job. You're supposed to be in the driver's seat here. That's what it means to lead, to be the spiritual leader. God has ordained you as the guy in the driver's seat. You're her redeemer, the one who's supposed to respect and protect the woman that God has entrusted you with. And I know that's difficult, and it's not a popular thing to say, but it's the truth, capital T. Ed Young, who's a pastor at Fellowship Church in Texas, actually I've been indebted to, to Ed for uh, many of these main insights, but he says that whenever he preaches on premarital sex, it goes the same way. He'll be out there after the service shaking hands, and 10 to 1, women will thank him for the message, and the guys say nothing. <laughs> time to grow up, men. Time to lead, time to protect, time to redeem. So, just take a look at the four beats in God's relational rhythm that makes for relationships that go the distance. Make the move from Moab. Go God's way. Observe the ethic. This is about character. Look for loyalty, value commitment, not relational hopscotch, and protect the purity. This is the melody that moved R&B to the marriage altar. But it didn't stop there, because there's one more beat that you need to know about actually in closing. And this is Ruth has signaled to Boaz she wanted him to be her kinsman redeemer. And Boaz replied this in verse 10. He said, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the young men, whether rich or poor. There's that emphasis on character again. He saw that Ruth wasn't after his money or just a hard body. And he says, and now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. A woman of noble character. Who can find her? There's a whole passage in Proverbs 31 devoted to extolling the virtues of finding a woman with that kind of integrity. We don't have time for it, but to sum up the last chapter of Ruth, chapter 4, Boaz learned he wasn't the only relative with a claim to marry Ruth. There's actually another man, a closer relative. But Boaz, in another telling display of his kindness and generosity, negotiates with the guy and says that he's actually willing to buy and redeem the entire estate of Ruth and Naomi. He's willing to pay for the whole deal. And he sacrifices and risks his own estate to take Ruth into his home, under his wing, and to marry her as his lawfully wedded wife. It is a beautiful love story. But that's not where it ends. Because those of you who are married know marriage is actually often the beginning of true love. See, because they decided to go God's way, and they honored their commitments to respect God and one another, their marriage was blessed in an incredible way. It was blessed in a way that they probably never could have imagined, in a one-of-a-kind way that extends an incredible blessing to you and to me in the 21st century modern world. The close of the book of Ruth records, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It has occurred to me during this series particularly in the preparation of this message about finding a love that actually lasts, that many of us may actually feel left out tonight. I mean, it's one thing, you know, to cry about love when you're a rock star or the star of a biblical story. But many of us think that, well, you know, this is great for R&B, Ruth and Boaz. That's great for them, but not for me. 
You may feel impressed, but you feel left out. I mean, this is the stuff of fairy tales or songs on the radio. It's like, and you think, my unimpressive ordinary life of smash-ups isn't so important to God that he would ever grant me a taste of this kind of love. But the reality is, the story of Ruth, of a woman who truly represents the relationally forgotten, a widowed, impoverished alien, her life is proof to the contrary. You have been noticed. You do matter to God. You have not been forgotten. Ruth gave birth to a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David. Do you realize the significance of that name? To some, the book of Ruth may be just a nice story about a girl who was fortunate once upon a time. But in reality, the events recorded in Ruth were part of God's preparations for the birth of King David, from whose line would come another king 2,000 years later. The reality is that Ruth, the forgotten outsider widow, uprooted and without hope, turns out to be the great-grandmother of David and the ancestor of Jesus Christ, our promised Redeemer. Just as Ruth was totally unaware of God's larger purposes and the losses she experienced and the relational frustrations of her life, we too have no idea of the full purpose and importance of our relationships here on earth until we're able to look back from the perspective of eternity. This is mind-boggling to think that this unlikely romance actually was not just coincidence, but ordained by God himself. Part of his redemptive plan to bring salvation to generations of people down through the ages. The point, folks, the relational decisions that we make now, which we may think are no big deal, actually have far greater implications when seen from the perspective of heaven in God's bigger story. I believe with my whole heart that God can use our decisions to make the move from mob, to observe the ethic, look for character, to look for loyalty, to protect the purity, to do something unbelievable in each one of your lives. When we avoid moral shortcuts and instead live in faithfulness to God, you can have confidence that God's rewards will outweigh any sacrifice we may have made. Because this story is truly a love story, capital L. It is a powerful reflection of what Jesus Christ did for us. 1,500 years later, another kinsman redeemer appeared on the scene in Israel to make an intimate relationship with God possible for you and for me. Think about this. Track with me. Go ahead. One more slide. As we close... When we for, go ahead, one back. When we first meet Ruth, she's a destitute widow. We follow her. She joins God's people. She gleans in the grain fields. She risks her honor at the threshing floor of Boaz. In the end, she becomes a treasured wife. Folks, this is a picture of how you can have the ultimate intimacy of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that first, we actually begin with no hope in our aliens, <laughs> with no part in the kingdom of God. We are the lost and forgotten. But then Jesus Christ appears on the scene to redeem us, to give us a second chance at life, at actually a relationship with God himself. The title of Foreigner's Song posed an opening question to us. I want to know what love is. In Jesus Christ, we have our answer. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. When Jesus came to this earth 1,500 years later, he paid the ultimate price to redeem us, to be his bride. He gave his life on the cross in our place. So we wouldn't have to bear the guilt and the shame of our sin, all of our faults, all of our failings anymore. He redeemed us and gave you and I a second chance at love, at real love, at unconditional love, the love of God. 
And anyone who places their faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus can have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. It's an incredible thing. But it takes humility and it takes honesty. And it takes an admission to God that we need his covering. Just as Boaz covered Ruth and took him into her home. But God's word tells us that as we risk everything by putting our faith in Christ, God actually saves us, he forgives us, he actually rebuilds our lives, and he gives us blessings that will last through eternity. You get it? Boaz's redeeming of Ruth is a picture of Christ redeeming you and me. And that's what true love is all about. Laying down one's life for another. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. Look at the cross. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Do you believe that? Have you put your trust in that, your confidence in his personal sacrifice for you? Have you asked him to redeem your life, to actually come into your heart and begin the greatest relationship you can ever know, the relationship that comes with knowing God? I hope you have. If you haven't, what are you waiting for? God has written a song to you. And the lyrics are written in blood, the blood of his son. And to those who call upon our Redeemer, he makes this promise, never, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You will never be alone again. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. You will be my son or my daughter, and I will be your God. That's passion. And that's the invitation to the selfless love that God offers. Have you received it? Have you returned it? I want to invite us to pray at this moment. Just take a chance to bow your head and take a moment to talk with God yourself. And maybe for the first time, tell God that you want it. You want a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Let me give you a moment here just to pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. Your story of redemption is not all about superheroes, super people of the faith. But Lord, people who believed in you, who put the confidence of their day-to-day lives in you, Lord, and who made small changes, small shifts in direction that had eternal impact. We want to thank you for the life of Ruth and Boaz, Lord, for the life of a widow who was faithful and trusted in you, for the life of a godly man who made sacrifices, Lord, and opened his heart, to people beneath him. Lord, we want to go your way. We want to make the move from Moab, Father, and move to where your people are, to the promised land. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who has promised to give us the strength we need to be faithful. I want to pray for every man and woman here, Lord, single men and women. Give them integrity, Lord. Give them a new perspective. For married men and women, Lord, would you bless the couples here and the families. Strengthen them, Jesus. By your spirit, by your power. We want to put your love on display to other people. We thank you most of all for showing us what true love is. And sending your son, Jesus. It's his name now that we worship.